Today we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, pray with me as we uh, look at this passage. God, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, enliven our hearts and awaken us to, uh, to receive and to, uh, you know, I guess, internalize more of your word, the truth of your word, and that uh, from where we are, from all the things that we experience this week and everything that we've gone through this week and wherever we are in our uh, relationship with you, God, we ask that you would speak to us and help us to know that you are near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have been going through 2 Corinthians because it talks about weakness, and I thought this would be a good season to think about weakness, but also uh, our uh, relation to not just weakness, but also to the power of God. And even though in the immediate context of this letter, Paul is basically talking about his apostolic ministry and giving a defense to these Corinthians, it is a very pastoral letter in terms of what it does say to us about weakness and affliction and suffering and even death. And I suspect that that is why a lot of these passages over the years, over the, uh, the history of the church, have been very meaningful to people because everybody experiences suffering and hardship. No matter what era you grow, grow up in, no matter your age, everybody's going to experience some degree of suffering and hardship and eventually even death. And so while the experiences of life are kind of like... Um, it can be like this magnet sometimes and it feels like it's pulling us towards despair and discouragement and fear. What the theology that Paul lays out in this section does is it basically reverses that polarity of the magnet and it reorients us around hope and things like courage. Now, right from the start of this passage, Paul gives us a picture of what it is like uh, on earth in our bodies, in our physical bodies. And he uses this imagery of a tent which I think is very appropriate for Paul because he was a tent maker. And he writes in verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. And if you remember last week, um, we looked at this imagery of jars of clay, and I imagine that Paul is looking at these jars, and he's thinking, what's a good illustration for uh, my ministry? And he gets this illustration of jars. This time, I, I imagine Paul, he's maybe making a tent, and he sees a tent, and he goes, hey, this is a good illustration of the fragility of life in the body. Why? Well, I don't know how many of you have gone camping. Uh, I, know, I know Dave has. Dave is not here, but he's a, oh, yes, he is. He's an Eagle Scout. Dave's a, if I were to go camping, I would go with Dave. Uh, when I was in college, though, 
uh, a couple of us, we drove all the way from New Jersey to Texas because there was like this Christian Woodstocky kind of event, like this big conference for college students, and it took place in this like huge open field in Texas. And the idea behind that conference was like, let's try to gather as many college students all over the country for one day of worship and prayer. And since it was all college students who had very little money, uh, I guess a way to make it more affordable is like not get like housing or hotels or things like that. But you'd have college students bring like tents, right? And you you set up these tents in this big open field. So that's what we did. We drove like 20 some hours to Texas and uh, we got to this big field and we set up our tents. And we're, you know, we're just kind of hanging out before uh, it got dark and until it was time to sleep. So at night, you know, we lay our, our there's a couple of tents and then we lay our sleeping bags and we start going to sleep. But you know that night, there was like this huge and violent storm that came. And it was like incredibly high winds and torrential rain. It just kind of came through and we were all awakened by it. And all of a sudden, like the tent, it just you, you start to see like drops of water coming in, like streams of water coming in. And then the, the wind kind of started to like lift the tent off the, the tent pegs off the ground. And so all of us were kind of inside and we're like trying to like, everybody's like trying to hold the tent and keep its structure while we're getting like soaked and our sleeping bags are getting soaked and like the wind is blowing. And my like one memory of it is like one of my friends, I remember had this like really odd phobia of wind gust. And I always thought he was like kind of half joking when he said, yeah, I'm afraid of wind gust. But then I looked at his face and no, it's true. He was like super scared of wind gust. And I was like, oh my gosh, this, uh, this guy's about to, this is like a look of terror in his face, right? So we're all holding it. And that night, what ended up happening is like the tent kind of collapsed and we all ended up sleeping in the car because the tent completely fell apart. That's uh, what Paul, when Paul's thinking about the tent, right? It's, it's a similar reference in, in the sense of like, Last week, the jars of clay, the weakness of the jars of clay, or what he's talking about with the outer self. The tent is our earthly body, and therefore it is weak, it is perishable, and it is very impacted by the violent storms that we experience metaphorically in life. Our skin breaks, our bones break, we get cuts, we get bruises, we get burns. Internally, we're susceptible to, as we've found out the last two years, viruses, right? Things like disease, things like cancers. And if, even if we are fortunate enough not to be affected by those things, what happens to everybody is we get older. And as we get older, our bodies start to hurt. Uh, I've had chronic pain in my neck and shoulder for many years now. It seems like in my parents' generation, all they talk about is their health. Uh, some of us, when we get out of bed or uh, get off the sofa or pick up maybe a little kid, what do we do? We go groan. We go, ugh, right? That's a sign of old age. Our bodies are breaking down. Paul also talks about groaning, and, and he says it twice in verses 2 and 4. And he says, what we do in this tent is we groan. But, of course, Paul does not mean it in this literal sense of groaning, but there's actually a deeper sense of groaning that he's talking about. And I think to get a better understanding or a picture of the kind of groaning that Paul's talking about, we can actually look at Romans chapter 8 because in there, there's a lot of parallels between what Paul says in Romans 8 and in this section of 2 Corinthians. In Romans 8, Paul talks about sufferings, right? The sufferings of the present time. And he says, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is uh, revealed to us. And that's similar to what we've already seen in this section of the 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about the unveiling of uh, the glory of God in this new covenant. In Romans 8, Paul also talks about our weakness, and he says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And of course, that's a theme that we find in 2 Corinthians. But with respect to our groaning, 
he says this in Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, when Paul talks about groaning, he makes this link to childbirth. And I don't know if uh, any of uh, the mothers in our community have ever given birth to a child without any kind of uh, epidural or pain intervention. But I actually had a friend, I think I've told this story before, I had a friend whose wife gave birth without any kind of pain intervention. And he was telling me about it and how like traumatic of experience it was, not, not only for her, but for him as well. And, you know, he's like, she's going through it, and he sees in her face how much pain she's in, and she's like screaming, and he says, you know, she was like pushing so hard that the blood vessels in her eyes actually popped, and so her eyes were like blood red. And, uh, he, he, like, the pain that she was in was like so heartbreaking to him that he was like, he started like shedding a tear. He started crying because he saw his wife in such extreme pain. And then after the baby came out, uh, he's like, um, he actually recommended, he's like, you know, maybe don't look in the mirror yet. Um, you might be shocked because it looked like she actually went through a war, right? So in Paul's day, I imagine probably most of the childbirth was closer to my friend's experience because they didn't have the medical technology that we do now. And I imagine that Paul, if he had seen a woman giving birth, he probably saw a lot of pain, right? The screaming, the crying, the, I can't do it. It's just too painful. But then all of a sudden you hear like the cry of the baby and there's this like really strange transition that happens from like that extreme pain to now like welcoming this this new uh this new child and that period of going through childbirth while also you know the pain of it while also anticipating like the joy of meeting this uh this little uh baby that you've been anticipating meeting you know, that's, that's a strange moment and a strange transition to go through. But that's how Paul thinks about this life and the life that is to come. In this life, all creation groans, right? In this tent, we are groaning because this life is full of hardship and pain and affliction. But there's also a sense of like anticipation of joy for something new, for new life that is about to come. And we live in that tension, right? In that, in that uh, I don't know, hospital room where, right, we have both. We see the pain, we feel the pain, we're experiencing the pain, while at the same time anticipating joy that is to come. So the pain and discouragement does not last forever because there is light at the end of the tunnel, and namely, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And when Jesus was crucified and raised three days later, it, it was this incredible, not historical event, but cosmic event. And when I say cosmic event, I mean that the death and resurrection of Jesus created this uh, really good kind of disruption, not just in this world, but in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. And that disruption interrupts this progression of sin and evil and decay, and light shines in darkness. And while the new creation is not yet fully here, that power of the resurrection has actually broken into this old creation so that now we can live according to the promises of which are guaranteed by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, theologians have called this two-age theology because we live in both right, the old age and the promises of the age that is to come. Uh, we are of old creation full of death and sin and decay. We have perishable bodies, but we also have 
access to the power of the age that is to come, which renews us inwardly day by day. That's the tension we live in. But let me also point something out and clarify something, because while it is true that we do groan on account of the fragility of life and the sufferings of the present age, that's not actually the reason Paul gives for our groaning, right? If you look at Romans 8, and if you look at our passage, our groaning is actually rooted in our deep longing, a sense of longing. Romans 8, Paul says, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this passage, Paul says, In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And so therefore, our groan is, is actually rooted in this deep longing to see that what God had promised comes to fruition in our experience, in our bodies, in the age that is to come. Uh, this is probably more of a pre-pandemic experience, but uh, have you ever had to like wait to eat at a restaurant uh, that's been known to have like this amazing food? And it's so good that there's always like a ton of people in a long line, and there's always like at least a two-hour wait, but people do it because the food is so good. And so as you're waiting, your stomach is growling and making all this noise because you're so hungry. You see the waiters come by and uh, you can see the food that they're carrying and that they're serving and the people that are eating. You, you smell the food and it, it stirs up that longing even more to, to eat that wonderful food. And as you wait for those two hours, wafting the sweet smells of that food, you start to groan. Oh, man, I can't wait to get that food, right? I can't wait to sit down and, and taste that food. And we may not realize it, but in this body and in this age, all of our groanings are rooted in that deep longing for the glory that is to come in this new creation, for that sense of uh, being full or fulfilled. And as Paul says in verse 2, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now, I want to spend a moment on that word alone for a minute, dwelling, okay? Um, there's something within us that always longs for a sense of home, wherever that may be. And home is not necessarily like the apartment that you live in or the, the house you may live in, but home uh, is a place where you feel like belonging or you feel security. Uh, for some people, it is uh, the apartment that you live in, especially if you've lived there for a long time. But uh, in a place like New York where people are moving all the time, that's not necessarily the case. And therefore, while most people have a place to live, not everyone necessarily has a home. And sometimes home is not, again, where we dwell, which is, I think, what we see Paul, uh, the point Paul will make later on in this passage. Now, uh, for one of my classes, I just read this great book called Lose Your Mother, and it's by uh, an English professor at Columbia uh, named Sadia Hartman. And basically, she wrote a book. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting book to describe. It's like this combination of history and English literature. Uh, but she wrote this book about her journey to Africa as an African-American woman. And it's a story about her own uh, sense of longing for home. And it's a very illuminating book because she does touch on something about the impact that the African slave trade made for generations later that does not really get that much attention. Uh, within the African community, there was like this idealized vision of Africa. And they imagined like, you know, this is the place where we're going to finally feel a sense of belonging because this is the land where we, we were taken from. And so they kind of had this, she calls it Afrotopia, right? This kind of utopic vision of uh, going back to Africa and kind of being reunited with your people and feeling the sense of home. So she goes to Ghana, where she's from, and she's expecting to feel like at home in Ghana only to discover 
that she doesn't belong there either. Uh, she's a stranger there as well. What she discovered is the people in Ghana, they actually see African-Americans not as Africans, but more as Americans. Uh, the slave trade is not a story of victimization and oppression for them, but for them, the slave trade story is a story of survival because they were the ones who were remained in Ghana and were triumphant warriors who survived being taken by these slave traders. Not only that, the people in Ghana, they view African-Americans as people who were very fortunate because they live in a, in a place, in a country, in a land that is much wealthier and have afforded them many more opportunities. After all, they would think, who but an American can buy a plane ticket and take a vacation or take a trip and fly here to Ghana and go to all these museums and things like that. So she comes in with this idealistic vision of, uh, I'm going home to be with my people only to discover this is not my home either. Ghana is not my home either. And while she does try to end on a note of hope, there is a sense of uh, she's a person without a home. She doesn't feel like America is her home on account of uh, her experiences with racism. And she also doesn't feel like Ghana is her home because they don't see her as one of her own, but as like this American foreigner. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of great passages in the book, but let me just read one where she reflects on what home means, uh, specifically to a slave. And this is what she says. The transience of the slave's existence still leaves its traces in how black people imagine home as well as how we speak of it. We may have forgotten our country, but we haven't forgotten our dispossession. It's why we never tire of dreaming of a place that we can call home, a place better than here, wherever here might be. It's why 100 square blocks of Los Angeles can be destroyed in an evening. We stay here, but we don't live here. And of course, she's getting at this, this uh, concept or this notion, this is where we exist, this is where we are physically, but this is not home for us. And I think there are maybe parallels for um, Asian Americans, maybe in a sense of like which, like where is our home for second generation Asian Americans. But uh, I know we live in a culture that doesn't really use words like sin or have kind of like this understanding or concept of what somebody means when they say the word sin. But if I were to try to convey the impact of sin to somebody in our culture, I might say, you know, sin is the heartbreak and the sadness that Sadia Hartman feels when she comes to the realization that she has no home. Conversely, if I were to try to convey why the gospel is such good news, I might say the gospel is such good news because it is about how God brings us home and gives us a home in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. We are no longer exiles. We are no longer orphans. But as Paul says in Romans 8, we are adopted as sons. And sonship, of course, uh, means a particular thing in the ancient world. We are redeemed as children that God has made us to belong to his household. Uh, as Paul would say in this passage, we are no longer found naked, but we are clothed by our heavenly dwelling. Because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we have a home. And while we do not yet dwell in that home, because we still live in this, this tent we do live in, with this deep longing for home. And that's where our groaning comes from, right? This deep longing for home. And the difference between Hartman's experience and that of the believer is we won't be disappointed because God promises us a home and he guarantees it. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And by the way, the Greek word there for guarantee is actually, it can be translated as a down payment. 
God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment for that home that is to come for us. Now, if all of that is true, if all of that really is true, well, what are the implications? What does that mean then for our lives? Um, you know, my, my kids want to know the implications of things all the time because I think it creates meaning for them. Uh, it creates like, uh, oh, this is why it matters. You know, just this week, I will say my youngest, uh, Karis, she is the worst at coming to uh, the right implications of certain things, right? So we're driving in the car and uh, they're in the back seat and she asks, you know, Daddy, do you like the color green? And I go, yeah, I like the color green. And then she says, what if Abby's name was green? And I go, what? She goes, yeah, what if Abby's name was green? And I go, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, does that mean you'll like Abby more? And I go, what? <laughs> right? I go, uh, no, uh, I think I would like her the same. And just because I like green doesn't mean I like people who are named green more. Uh, I would probably just call her green, right? So in that conversation, she's like trying to draw the right implications. And I, I don't know how her mind works, but she comes up with like all these like thoughts and she's trying to like make sense of it of like, okay, so what would that mean? Now, even for us, understanding the implications of what Paul is saying here is actually very important if we're going to make meaning out of it for us. And so what are Paul's implications? I think there are a couple things that he says here, but I, I do think they all come from the same spiritual root, and uh, I'll explain that a bit later. The first thing Paul says is this. Uh, he says, we are always of good courage, and he actually says that twice. And so I think one of the implications of if that is true, of what Paul said about home is true, that being given uh, the Holy Spirit as a down payment is true, and the promises of God are true, it means that uh, Paul's no longer driven by fear. Uh, I've talked a lot about fear and what our fears tells us about uh, our faith. And, you know, I always say there's a lot of good reasons in this world to be afraid, but God gives us a better reason to not be afraid through his promises. And if we are a people that are ultimately driven by fear, what it means is, like, we don't really uh, believe or um, we haven't internalized the, the things that God has promised us, right, in the power of the resurrection, uh, which is why fear is not primarily a, a an issue of our circumstances, but fear and faith are very tied together. And so Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. God has promised us a heavenly home which, uh, with him so that even though our earthly home is destroyed, even though our bodies may be destroyed, we still have a building from God, a house that is not made by human hands. The second thing Paul says is this, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, to please God. And there's a difference between trying to avoid uh, doing what is wrong versus trying to please somebody, right? Th there's a difference in terms of your disposition and your attitude and your perspective. Uh, I don't do this very much anymore. Maybe it's because I'm too old, but there was a period when I was younger where I would speak at like youth retreats and youth conferences and interact with like a lot of like uh, high school kids and things like that. And, you know, sometimes like what's on their mind, they would want to want me to do like a seminar on like dating and sex and uh, usually one of them would always ask like oh so what are the boundaries in dating in terms of physical intimacy in a dating relationship like can you tell me what activities would be considered wrong i don't even know if teenagers ask that these days because um, the world has changed so much but back then that's something that they were very curious about and so 
uh, <clears throat> you know, if they were looking for kind of a list of you're allowed to do this, but you're not allowed to do that, they probably would have been very disappointed with my answer because I didn't give them that kind of answer. I basically said this. I said, if your approach is how far can I go without something being wrong, then you probably are approaching uh, life uh, from the wrong perspective. And you're going to have a distorted view of how you ought to relate to God. Uh, because then your view of God is like, oh, what's God going to let me get away with? Your approach to life with God should not be, what can I get away with? But your approach to life with God should be, how can I please him, right? Uh, that should be your moral compass, so to speak, in human relationships. There are a lot of ways in which, uh, there are a lot of people in which we relate to in the first kind of way. So for example, uh, just outside as I was parking, you know, there's a meter maid, right? The people who give tickets on the street. And I said, am I allowed to park here? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you can park here, right? My relationship with that meter maid is I just don't want to do anything wrong because I don't want to get the ticket, right? I don't want to get punished. That's the nature of my relationship with a meter maid. But you know, my relationship with somebody who's closer or more intimate, like my family, like my wife and kids, it, it can't be, oh, what can I get away with? And uh, like what wrong or how close can I get to doing something wrong and for it to not be wrong, my, my disposition toward them should be, what can I do to make them happy? What can I do to, to please them, so to speak? Um, is it morally wrong to not clean the inside of the toilet for a few days? My wife might say yes, but I don't think it's morally wrong, right? It's okay to not clean it for a few days. But would my wife appreciate it if I cleaned it? Sure. So I'll try to do it. <laughs> Right? Given what God has given and promised to us, the implication is not what can I get away with. The implication is how can I please him in all that I do, right? Paul brings these two implications together in this last verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I don't know if you're wondering like, okay, Paul says all these things, and now he's bringing up this concept of the final judgment. And like, why is he bringing this concept up? But I think it's actually related to the fear of the Lord. And if we read verse 11, it would say that explicitly, because Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord is a phrase that is used all over the Bible. And it's not necessarily referring to kind of being scared of God, but rather it's about having this disposition or attitude in life where uh, you revere God, the majesty of God. As a result, everything in your life is ordered around pleasing him because you revere him so much. And when you are driven by uh, other fears, and like, for example, the fear of man, you find that you begin to order your life and your actions are kind of reoriented around that kind of fear. So, uh, I don't know, let's, let's think about that for a moment. Think about just how the dynamics of fear of man work. Fear of man doesn't necessarily mean you're afraid of people, but uh, it, it might mean you're driven by their thoughts or their opinions of you or their judgments of you. Uh, there's something within your heart that says, well, what that person thinks of me is very important, and therefore I want to make sure that they render a positive judgment of me. Uh, there's different phrases for that. It could be uh, uh, peer pressure. It could be a people pleaser. But it's basically giving other people to, uh, to drive your actions, your thoughts, your decisions. And oftentimes it leads to all kinds of sin, both big and small. Maybe you never tell someone the truth about something because you're afraid that they might react to you in a negative way. Uh, maybe you overcommit yourself to something because you're afraid of saying no to people. Uh, maybe you kind of go with the flow of a, you know, of a culture or a system that you 
you know is corrupt, but you don't want to speak out and kind of be a whistleblower because of what people might think of you, right? There's just all, all kinds of places where fear of man dynamics work, and it's a very powerful force and, I would say, dangerous for healthy relationships. But conversely, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means you are driven by uh, thoughts, opinions, and the judgments of God. What he thinks of you and your life are important to you, and of course, because of Christ, what he thinks of us in a final sense is going to be we are uh, righteous because of the blood of Christ. That's the entire gospel. And therefore, your aim is certainly to please him. And as we live, we need to f the fear of the Lord to drive us towards a life of obedience and integrity, yes, uh, but also a life that desires to please him, to make him happy. And we think, well, what would this please God if I did this? If I think this, if I do this, will this please God? And you find yourself, you live a life very differently versus uh, thinking about God and saying, well, what can I get away with? Is God going to be mad at me if I, if I do this? It's a very different way of thinking. Now, I don't know how a believer can live with integrity without the fear of the Lord. And we all need a sense that one day we are going to face God and we are going before the judgment seat of God and we will be judged in some sense for our actions in the body. And without it, we do become untethered um, and we kind of will go with uh, the, the way the wind blows, right, so to speak. But the good news is this, that when we come before God's judgment seat for the believer, it is about receiving what is due rather than being turned away. And that's the phrasing Paul uses. We know we won't be turned away because in Christ we are invited to partake in this new creation and we will receive and be given these new resurrected bodies. And how can we be so sure that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as this down payment so that now we can anticipate home will come one day. Uh, the groanings from childbirth will end one day. And even in this pain, we can anticipate this new life that is to come one day. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, for your precious promises, and we thank you for the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he has been given to us and that we can get a greater sense of your presence and get a greater sense of your power in our lives. And, um, you know, sometimes we know uh, the most powerful times of experiencing your presence and your power uh, is when we feel the weakest. Um, maybe that's when we feel the most vulnerable. Maybe that's when we feel the most dependent and in need of your help. And if that's the case, then as painful as some of these moments are, uh, we also know that they can be for our spiritual good. Uh, help us not to grow uh, dependent upon our own strength and lean upon our, our own power and our own strength. Help us not to lean on our own achievements, uh, our own abilities, our own intellect, our own gifts. Uh, but give us a greater sense of you. Give us a greater sense of your power. Uh, we want to be a people that can embrace weakness so that we can make way for your power uh, to be revealed in our lives. We thank you, God, for giving us a home and something that we all long for. And maybe uh, in a place like New York, uh, something people in New York long for even more. Uh, you give us a home. And we thank you for that place of belonging, that place of security, 
And we ask that you would help us anticipate it with full joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.